Entertainment Geekly, Entertainment Weekly's guide to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and awesome. I'm Darren Franich, and with me, as always, on telephone from the great state of Los Angeles, Entertainment Weekly's Jeff Jensen. The state of Los Angeles. So we, we, we've been promoted. We're a city-state now. It's uh. it's official. You're a city-state. It's also a, a state of mind, you know, uh, a state of being, perhaps. Perhaps, yes. Perhaps. Yes. <laughs> Jeff, let's just dive right in. We got a lot of exciting news from the world of geekery this week. Uh, yesterday, Marvel announced that X-Men Northstar is going to propose to his longtime boyfriend, leading into what I think is the first mainstream uh, superhero comic book, Gay Wedding. A- at the same time, uh, DC announced that one of their superheroes, they're not saying who yet, but someone who's been around for a while, is going to come out of the closet. I-, I have to admit that I'm just kind of intrigued to see which superhero it is. I mean, my, my sense is it's probably not going to be one of their, you know, main, uh, you know, Superman, Batman, uh, Flash-level superheroes, but they seem pretty serious about making it someone who has been around for a while. Huh, interesting. Uh, I, I, I tend to agree with you uh, that it won't be major, which makes me feel uh, bad for even saying that, because that's my, that's my cynical uh, attitude talking uh, that you know, basically, like uh, that. This is a really good idea, but not so good that we want to like attach it to one of our major, major properties. Because hey, we don't want to alienate or um, you know people who might have problems with this. I, I wouldn't it be cool though if if it was something on a you know iconic level like the Flash. Um, my guess is that it will be the Red Tornado. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna counter that guess. I think they're gonna go with Martian Manhunter. You know, they there's a character they've always been trying to find some way to make people who aren't comic book fans interested in him. I think it's I think it's time. I think Martian Manhunter is gonna come out of the closet. Um, it's either it's either gonna be that or 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 Mr. Terrific. <laughs> Uh, but, I, but I hope, I don't know, I, I, I hope that we're surprised, I hope that it will be someone of significance and weight, and someone, someone that they actually actively um, use in their storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, the, the fact that North Star is getting married is really, really cool. Is, is North Star a major player in Marvel Comics? I mean, is he around every month? Is he... I, I don't know anymore, really, but... Uh, no, um, N- North Star uh, was a member of Alpha Flight, the, the sort of, like, sad trombone uh, Canadian version of the Avengers back in the day. Uh, I, I, I think the, the most interesting thing about him used to be that he was French-Canadian, um, but, uh, and, you know, again, I, I, I think we agree, you know, give them credit for, you know, being absolutely. a little bit more progressive. But at the same time, it is, there is a sense of, of, of tiptoeing at, at, at the same time, which is always sort of disappointing. But I always feel that, like, comic books um, are at the forefront of trends. And I think that, uh, I think it's cool that they're doing this and they're, they're getting, you know, they're, they're kind of leading the way and sort of like the... The, the cultural movement of gay marriage. That's mm-hmm, cool. Definitely. Uh, other big news. Uh, it's a little bit outside of our realm, Jeff, but I, I think we have to mention uh, what happened with NBC's Community, a show that we both like a lot and that I think really has uh, a lot of interesting things both to say and to offer the geek community. Uh, showrunner Dan Harmon last week was announced. Uh, he, he's he's being sort of pushed out of his current role and into a non-role, essentially, in the show. You know, the, the internet is already sort of 
blown up with this, and it's hard to even say what we should be feeling because we haven't seen the new show yet. But I, I think I'm, I'm definitely disappointed just because, to me, Community, this season especially, just felt like it was pushing whole new... Uh, it, it was sort of like like continually pushing back the boundaries of what a sitcom can do and just the sheer amount of story and thought that went into it. I, I'm definitely sad to know that the show's main guiding light is not going to be involved in it anymore. You and me both. I, I, I agree. I think that community represents a lot of values that you and I both really prize in television and in terms of creativity. I don't, I won't say that uh, this season, I can't say that this season community always worked, that it was always like really, really funny, but it was always really bold and really daring and, um, and just really kind of pushed that whole sort of like pop culture spoofing, pop culture communion, the, um, the, 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 the multiple levels that the, that the show some, sometimes work on, works on. I just like uh, really great stuff. And to whatever degree that is the product of, of, of Dan Harmon's mind, um, to whatever degree the show is truly authored by Dan Harmon, I mean, uh, we're going to miss that. At, at the same time, I think this was a, I, I, we saw a really interesting cultural conversation that blew up out of Dan Harmon's, you know, removal from the show or replacement from the show, which is that, you know, initially a lot of sort of the knee-jerk commentary was like, you know, damn NBC, damn Sony, like, um, and kind of buying into this whole sort of auteur theory of television, which basically says that community is now going to die as a result of Dan Harmon's removal and that he deserves to sort of like remain in place, um, you know, at all costs, no matter what kind of person he is, however he's running the show. And it's interesting how that conversation has now changed over time as sort of people kind of wondering if, you know, like what's really going on? How much do we really know about what goes on behind the scenes of how television shows are made? And maybe a feeling of also of like, like, can we give the show a chance? I mean, like I, I'm, I, I feel bad for that cast, but I love that cast. I think they're extremely talented and I hope that the new writers can, can give them really great stuff to do. I think you're exactly right. You know, there's a sense here that we've all kind of had to go through a very accelerated version of the 12 stages of grief, and, you know, maybe we're just sort of, like, trying to move on to acceptance now. But, you know, the magic of community is always that, in, in a way, it's almost a very abstract sitcom. It's literally just about, like... You know, these characters are all very well defined, but each week it just starts off with them in a room and it can go absolutely anywhere. I mean, as we've seen, it can become a Law and Order parody. It can become, you know, sort of a show that kind of winks at, at, at conspiracy theory plot lines. It, it can, they, they can go into a video game. There's no reason right. why, you know, some new writers coming into a show that has such a well-drawn sense of its character dynamics while also allowing them to be really whatever show they want to be, there's no reason why that show won't be good. I I, I do think you're right, though. We're, we're, we're going to see in the new community just a sort of sense of, you know, what do we actually know about what the showrunner does? You know, is this sort of new auteur theory of television, you know, is, is it really accurate in any way? I, 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 I think it's something that will play out very interestingly next season. Yeah. The video game episode of Community, by the way, totally genius, but probably a case study and kind of like what is probably alarming about that show from a corporate point of view, which is that when you watch that episode, I can't really say, Darren, that I laughed hysterically 
or like engaged in it in some sort of like you know traditional sitcom way where I'm just kind of laughing and laughing and laughing and invested in the way like you know on a gut level the way that 30 rock just like makes me belly laugh at the same time watching the video game episode of community I, I my, my mouth was just kind of open the entire time kind of going like what is going on in this show but it was all like really it was it was it was dazzling on a cerebral level and it was so clever and 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 all of that but it, but it community kind of routinely kind of puts you in these places where you kind of don't know how to process it because you're because it's so kind of new and 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 pushing the envelope on things and i can imagine that for other people in the audiences uh, in the audience it feels like work you know mm-hmm. like i gotta work to appreciate the show um, it's true well, I, and, and, I, I, I enjoyed the work it's true I mean, and you know you know i mean i'll kind of go further i i actually loved that episode that's probably to me one of my like you know it's it's in my my top five list for sure and what i like about it is what I think is a central part of community's appeal if you can sort of get over that initial sort of terrifyingly cerebral sensibility is that, you know, it, it that episode was very hyper-referential. And as a video game geek, I could point out, you know, oh, like, they jumped like Mega Man and there was a random throwaway reference to a very minor subquest in Ocarina of Time and all those things that, you know, <laughs> me, me me as a fan, I can, I can see and be like, wow, like, somebody on staff is exactly as nerdy as I am. But what I liked about it is that it, it wasn't just like, hey, let's do a video game spoof episode. There was kind of a quality to it of like, let's do this, but also weirdly find a sort of emotional core to it with, yeah. you know, some help from casting, uh, you know, a great guest star and kind of, you know, f- you know, n- making it this sort of uh, uh, weirdly kind of a, a peer centric episode, which they, you know, yeah. they, they don't they don't tend to do that often. I I uh, I'll be intrigued to see if the new show uh, without Dan Harmon is as ambitious as that. My sense is it won't be, but my, my other sense is that it's still going to be pretty fun. Yeah. Um, let's now. Uh, I want to move on uh, now, Jeff. Uh, I think maybe the most surprising geek event of the week, something that I don't even think was really on, certainly wasn't really on my radar. Uh, Earlier this week, of course, was the second anniversary of the Lost uh, series finale. And uh, there was actually a lot of kind of, uh, I I think like on the internet, certainly, there was, I think, a surprising amount of kind of outpouring of people discussing it again for, you know. Yeah, I mean, it it was strange. Uh, It took me by surprise. And, you know, I tend to think about Lost a lot, <laughs> being, you know, who I am uh, and uh, how kind of, like, crazy I was for that show for, for, for six years. But, you know, second-year anniversaries are not usually something that I recognize as major significant events. So, to be honest with you, I was kind of surprised to see that on, 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 on Tuesday like that was just to see kind of like on, on Twitter, my Twitter feed just kind of being alive with critics and fans and bloggers kind of like, um, you know, recognizing the significance of the day. And then all of a sudden kind of creating this all day kind of like nostalgia fest where we saw people exchanging lines and posting YouTube clips and um, linking to theories and, and all of this stuff. And I like, I, I was kind of like, you know, me for me psychologically, I'm gearing up for maybe the um, the 10 year anniversary of the premiere in mm-hmm. 2014, and maybe the five year anniversary of the finale. These seem like nice round number anniversaries to kind of zero in on. 
But the fact that I, I, I was just surprised and touched, it kind of tells you how much that, you know, that Lost inspired a, a, a real distinct and still vibrant fan community that lives largely online and is still very close and still has very fond memories and very strong uh, feelings, pro and con, um, about the show. And uh, they still love talking about it. And I, and, I, and I dare say that they are still looking for something to replace it. And that, that, that's, for me, the kind of thing that immediately jumped out about the sort of like wallowing and lost two year, only two years after the fact is that, is that we're still looking for something to engage us the way that Lost did. And while there have been some noble efforts and some modest successes, nothing has galvanized us the way Lost did. I think you're right. I always think it's interesting because Lost, in a lot of ways, besides you know being a very influential show in terms of you know how you can construct narrative and you know this whole notion that you can really tell one kind of unified story over the course of several years lost really influenced how I think, you know, an entire kind of new generation of TV viewers, you know, like how we watch TV, how we dissect TV. You know, when Lost first came on, there wasn't really this sort of world of TV recapping online. And, uh, you know, like uh, Lost is the show that inspired certain people who will remain nameless to write, you know, pages and pages of really sort of like heavily dissective, uh, you know, deep dives mixed with philosophy and, you know, references and other things like that. It, it feels... And typos and silliness. Lots Lots of typos. The, the ingredients <laughs> of a good Doc Jensen theory. Lots of typos, dropped words, and absolute incoherence. <laughs> like, like all the great philosophers. But uh, you know, it is funny that now we're at, we're at we're at the point where you know, let's say like a show like. Well, you know, community, or you know, even a, a, a sort of lesser series like you know something along the lines of The River when it first comes out. You know, there will be a the coverage of that will almost mirror the coverage of Lost. You know, there's a real sense of you know people want to devour shows the way we once did Lost, but nothing has really took its place. Do you think it, it's to me it's partially that although Lost was, of course, you know, a, a brilliant show and it certainly had a lot of interesting aspects to it that could be, you know, dissected, do you think it's partially just that, like, no show like that has also been, you know, actually commercially successful? It, it, to me, like, that was always kind of the magic of Lost initially, was that, you know, it was a show that was very brainy, but at the same time, it was a show that, like, you kind of felt like everyone was talking about it the next day, whereas now it feels like we're all kind of off in our private fiefdoms, you know, talking about community or Game of Thrones or even The Walking Dead. Absolutely. I think that there is something definitely to be said about the, the, the appeal of Lost was that it was so appealing um, to, a, to a lot of people, at least initially, and, and, and even at the end, like t 10 to 14 million people on a, on a weekly basis is, is nothing to sniff at. And, and uh, today's, I mean, you can sniff at it because what, what does that even mean? Sniffing. Sniff um, at it. Like, I, I, I sniff in your general direction, sir. There we go, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like it was always, you know, it, I mean, it did a huge number for a couple of years, and then it did really significant, solid numbers for the rest of its run. Um, but there was something about that, especially early on, where you kind of felt like everyone was talking about it, everyone you knew. Um, and that's, of course, total hyperbole, but it felt that way. And so you wanted to be part of the cultural conversation. And even if you found yourself, especially early on, it seemed like 
you know, there are people I definitely knew who, who, who loved Lost, especially early on, and never got into it the way that I got into it or you got into it, but, you know, it entertained them, you know, and so, but, and, and, and they enjoyed hearing other people geek out about it, if not because they were after the same answers, but just because they're just, they love to kind of sit on the sidelines and shake their head and kind of go, wow, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you sound crazy, but kind of fun, mm-hmm. but crazy. Um, and so there was definitely kind of like this, I, I think that there's something, the, the, the size of it all, like definitely, um, um, and the different layers of it all. But with that also came some bad too, because I remember that like in those early years of Lost, you know, because it was so big and because the show was so dynamic, you had a lot of infighting, you know, among that fan community over what, what was the best version of Lost. And what kind of we kind of forget now and i think this is kind of relevant to the controversy about the finale right is that from the very beginning of lost there were arguments over what 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 was ultimately the best form of the show what were the best parts of the show and what the show should really be there were a lot of people if you remember from the very beginning who thought that flashbacks were like they, they get rid of the flashbacks for a couple of years, there was a huge like argument about that. Like, get rid of the flashbacks. We don't really want to know anything about these people. We just want to stay on the island. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. give us the mystery exploration, explore the island. And then there were other people who were like, no, it's all about the characters for me, or just this one character, or whatever. And um, it, so, uh, kind of like, not that we're going to talk completely about this, but uh, that, uh, that always kind of was a factor for me at the end of the show. Um, by why some you saw a lot of people who were not satisfied because throughout lost history there was no it was not a homogeneous kind of like fan culture. Oh, definitely. Well, and this is something that I think is very interesting about the show is that by its very nature, you know, every week would focus on a different character, and you know, there were some characters where even the entire structure of, let's say, a Desmond episode would be radically different from the structure of a Charlie episode or, or a Jack episode. I mean, like, you know, different sort of narrative style, very different themes, certainly a very different supporting cast, thanks to the flashbacks. I actually feel like, uh, you know, thinking about, it's it's been two years since Lost, one thing that I find myself thinking about quite often is that, you know, for me, the show was really at its best in, you know, about like late season three into season four, you know, really energetic storyline. That's when, uh, you know, we sort of brought up the notion of flash forwards and there was just a sense that you were seeing all time happen at once in some sort of insane quantum narrative style. And uh, I, I realized that, strangely enough, my favorite character on the show it, it was probably was Desmond, and he was very sidelined for the last two seasons, whereas you kind of had, especially in that finale, this sort of sense that all along this has maybe been mainly the story of Jack, which is only interesting because I think a lot of people genuinely don't like Jack. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, uh, I mean, Jack was definitely... You know, I think that what became apparent, like the more you watched the show, was that there were there were there were a certain set of characters that were clearly most meaningful to the writers, and they ultimately, I think, defined the larger, broad thematic strokes of the entire series. You know, Jack, John Locke, and Ben, and you know their quests for you know truth and 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 or how how to live a you know. Um, a moral life or a, a life with wisdom or knowing what the right thing to do is amid, amid sort of profound ambiguity um, and, 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 def- and finding meaning when, you know, we have no idea really what's going on or 
um, wanting wanting significance. You know, what about me? I, you know, that great speech from Ben at the end of uh, season five. I mean, those characters clearly galvanized the writers and um, and and became the show. I think. I think you're right, um, and uh, I mean, you know, this is this is a conversation that you know we'll, we'll we'll still be having probably you know next February when it's the five year anniversary of the of the <laughs> constant. We'll we'll still be having it, but uh, it, it is interesting, you know. Uh, now I want to kind of move on here uh, and just talk about one thing that you mentioned. You know, uh, in the wake of Lost, there hasn't really been a TV show that has picked up the mantle in quite the same way, but there have been certainly there was sort of an entire generation of series realized dramas uh, that, you know, tried each in their own way to conjure up something of what Lost was. I thought, we thought uh, it'd it'd be fun this week. Let's just go back and forth and let's say what our top three non-Lost serialized dramas are. Uh, Jeff, do you want to start off with your number three? Wow. Okay. So we're talking all time, right? I, you know, uh, I, I think we can, uh, you know, we don't need to be too, too locked into anything here. I think like, you know, the only real... Uh, requirement should be that you know it's it's serialized in the same kind of fashion that Lost was. Although you know if if you want to make an argument for Desperate Housewives, then you know I'm I'm certainly not going to stop you, Jeff. <laughs> right. Interesting. Like and so that that, that I mean I, I I'm going I, I love I love lists I love top three. Let's note something right off the bat, which is that I think that like a lot of the shows that we're going to talk about are. Um, like there, there is a sort of broad category of serialized shows, but there are clearly shows that are more serialized than others, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like so. For example, The X Files. Like um, my top three favorite shows of all time, and and given on on any any day they change: Twin Peaks, The X Files, and Lost. Of those three shows, um, you know, Twin Peaks was definitely heavily serialized, and so was. Lost to to a slightly lesser degree, but certainly. But I wouldn't say the X Files is a serialized drama, would you? I wouldn't. No, you know, uh, as as I as I was sort of like you know thinking about this ahead of time, uh, you know, uh, t- like it's funny. The one that I was thinking of was Fringe, actually, which is certainly a show that has huge sort of like long running storylines that you know stretch out over the years. But I, I I think it's a little different, and you know, I, I think I think it kind of comes back around to this notion that I think Fringe has really been the key to perpetuate which is the idea of a sort of serial sodic uh, hybrid series where you can kind of have episodes that are very much their own thing versus episodes that do sort of feed into the greater mythology. I think, like, you know, what I'm kind of more interested in is a a show like Lost, especially what Lost became after its first season, where you really have this sense of, you know, this season sort of tells one long-running story, and that season feeds into the next season, and there's a real sense that if you miss one chapter, then you may potentially have missed, you know, the whole boat, uh, essentially. Okay, very good. So I'll start. My number three on my list is uh, is Wise Guy. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see Wise Guy? I haven't. This is a, a like late eighties, early nineties crime drama, right? That's right. Um, starring Ken Wall, and he worked as sort of like this undercover agent, and initially he was um, infiltrating like crime families for the sake of bringing down mob bosses. As this as the series progressed, um, they would put his undercover cop. Um, in sort of different um, uh, cultural areas, different kind of categories. One time he 
he was uh, he he for example he went to the uh, in, he infiltrated the music business and he posed as a record label guy and he was sort of trying to bring down corruption in there and another time he went undercover in a small town and another time um, he went to Washington D.C. Um, but what was really innovative about this show and really captured the imagination for me at the time was the idea that every season would either be one whole arc or two arcs or even three arcs and so and it really kind of introduced into sort of like the cultural you know tv lexicon the whole idea of arcs so um you know you would get four or five episodes that were that were, were set in sort of like that were that told one story and there would be some you know uh, uh characters there would you know there would be ken wall's character and he had you know two guys that worked with him but the whole supporting cast would be rebooted um, with every arc, and the tone of the show could be different with every arc. And it was very different from anything that was on television, and you got the sense very clearly that this was more creatively meaningful to the writers of the show. And, um, and to this day, you, you hear television writers in the business who sort of were, were kids or were young guys starting out in the business kind of really pointing to wise guy and saying, like, like, uh, th- there's a model that they really esteemed and they wanted to kind of return to. I would love to see a drama kind of emulate that model. You know, uh, I think uh, I'm really glad that you brought this up because one interesting thing, one sort of fallacy about serialized dramas that I, th- I think explains why a lot of the post-Lost shows failed is that there's kind of this sense that, um, uh, you know, a, a show like that is serialized, but it's really more like a series of short stories. And, you know, every sort of beginning of new arc, it's almost like an entirely new series is starting up in a way, even though some characters are, are, are kind of, you know, some characters flow in and some leave. I'm especially glad you mentioned that because that dovetails nicely with my number three, uh, a show that, you know, was very popular in its time, but that I, I think in some ways has sort of been overlooked uh, in hindsight is uh, 24, which very similarly, each season of that show was very much its own sort of node, very often with hugely different characters and very different circumstances. There was kind of like Wise Guy, the sense that every year there would be a different villain, or if the first villain was lame, they'd kill him off and, and, and bring in a new villain. And one thing that I especially like about 24 uh, that, you know, I, 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 I recall noticing this in, in its third season. You know, the, th- the third season of that show began with this sort of insane plot line that nobody understood that involved these drug-dealing brothers in, I think they were in South America, and it was just very awkward. And literally halfway through the season, they just killed off everyone involved in that subplot, brought in this awesome British guy, and basically became about Jack Bauer versus evil James Bond. And it was incredible. It, it's I, I think that, you know... It's very easy to get locked into this notion that serialized dramas, you know, when you as a fan are watching them and you hear that they're making it up as they as they go along, you know, you feel like kind of frustrated. But that's kind of part of the fun of television is, you know, something's not working and you, uh, you know, you you move on and you try to do something new. And I, 24, when it was at its peak, was incredible at that. It was also a show that was great at, at killing off only the characters you loved the most, which I always really tend to respect in, in TV shows that I like for some reason. You know, it's funny you should say that, Darren, because my number two is 24. Damn. Uh, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to elaborate much further than than you did because, uh, you know, there are there are certain shows when I think about like you know when I grade them at their best, like how I felt, or 
And when 24 was at its best, it, it falls in that small category of shows where it was just like, I could not wait until the next week. Like, it just like, I, it, it felt a little bit like, you know, I've never, well, crack, you know, to use a really bad metaphor, like I've taken crack, I haven't. But you know, like, <laughs> this is really horrible. But you know, like, um, uh, like, I loved that show, and I just loved Jack Bauer as a character, um, the, the morally ambiguous hero who will, like, you know, push the envelope, you know, the American James Bond, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, that, that show just, uh, just I was amazed at what it could accomplish, you know, uh, a, a, an action movie level thrill ride, like on a small, on the small screen. And I love the mystery of it all. Um, there was always a part of the series that was like, the first half of it was always more interesting than the second half. Mm-hmm. Because the first half was always this really tantalizing mystery of, like, what's really going on? Who's the real bad guy? How does one plot lead into another plot, lead into the bigger plot? You know, it's kind of it always had these sort of Russian doll kind of construction, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then finally it gets to a point in the season, you know, the, ba- the, 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 the weak seasons, it came too soon, and the best seasons, like, were, it, it kind of, like, delayed it as, as much as possible, where, where then you realized what was at stake, and then it was just about uh, a chase after a MacGuffin for the final, like, six to 12 episodes. Right, right. It's always like, you know, uh-oh, like, th- there's a nuclear bomb, or there is, you know, evil Russian Dennis Hopper, or there... Right. Th- 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 there is always, like, some very kind of artificical, like, we need, to, we need to end this thing somehow within the next three hours. Right. But, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was, like, it, it, it was great. I loved it. It was great. It, it, it was also very long-lived. Uh, the next show on my list, my number two... A uh, very short-lived series, uh, it, it, but it's a series that, in its time, I think accomplished a lot and was very ambitious. I'm talking about a show, Jeff, that created an entire fantasy world, complete with sort of like its own kind of epic history, featured cinematic production values, some twisted storytelling, and I think one of the great lead performances on a broadcast network this decade. My number two show, NBC's Kings. Mm, what do you okay. what do you think about that? Did you did you watch the series? Were you were you a fan of the Ian McShane uh, David and Goliath uh, retelling? I, I respect your choice immensely because I have no idea what you're talking about. Really? Uh, oh, this is this is one. Uh, ne- ne- never watched it. Never watched it. I, I I believe it's on Hulu. This is this is a real overlooked gem, and it's hard to even understand why exactly they greenlit this because you watch it and it seems to have absolutely no appeal to anyone. Uh, but uh, this is a show, it's sort of a retelling of the David and Goliath tale in this modern era, which sort of seems to be like New York, but it, it, it has this sort of strange like Game of Thronesiness to it where there are all these kind of countries nearby that are always kind of jockeying for position. Ian McShane stars as the king of this sort of fictional land, and then there's a, there's a young sort of David figure who comes to his court, and it's it's just a really kind of interesting show. I, I, I think the reason why it didn't do that well in its time, this, this was on in, I think, 2006 or 2007, uh, the first episode is just incredible and it really kind of throws you into this sort of like fictional landscape and this war. From there, it had a couple of terrible episodes and I think, rightly so, nobody nobody wanted to watch it because it just seemed weird. That show, though, has one of the great like back halves of the first season ever. I think probably because they knew they weren't gonna possibly get picked up. It There's a scene of, on this show, Jeff, where Ian McShane is talking to Brian Cox, who's playing an imprisoned former emperor, 
and it's literally just like you're watching. It's, it's hard to even understand how this made it on a broadcast network. It's just two great British actors, both sort of like acting the pants out of each other. It's uh, it's 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 a great, very overlooked show that I, I think maybe deserves more respect than it gets. Which, based on this conversation, is absolutely none. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, definitely, I think what you're saying is worth checking out, and it sounds like you know, uh, for for better. Uh, or, or worse, unfortunately, for the people who worked on it and those who were um, fans of the show, not a huge time investment. No, no. <laughs> because there's not many episodes. What, um, exactly. Th- 13 episodes and then it's over. What about, okay, what's your, what, what's your number one, though? Let's get down to brass tacks here. Well, the thing about my number one is I'm interested in knowing if you think it's a cheat. Um, and I'm willing to debate this because this kind of brings us full circle to what is a serialized show. But this show meets my, um, it, 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 it's my number one because it, it, it accomplished what I want a serialized television show to do in its most ideal form, which is tell me an epic story over a long period of time about people growing and changing and evolving and, uh, and, and, and have a remarkable degree of, of, of continuity with itself. And... Um, where you can really kind of see from season one to season two to season three, season four, it has the feel, whether it was actually constructed like this or not, of, of being sort of like a master, you know, one single story told over time. Um, and for me, no show ever did that better than Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, Buffy now, the Vampire Slayer, okay. Yeah. And now, Buffy the Vampire Slayer has an incredible built-in mechanism because... It covers the span of time in anyone's life that actually feels like a serialized television show, which is adolescence and growing up, right? <laughs> like, like our, our lives have that sort of natural mythic arc to them, and it only occurs once. And it's like basically, you know, from about high school through college. And, uh, and, 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 you know, some people, for them, that's the most miserable time of their lives, and some people, it's a great adventure with a, you know, like a results in graduation you know it's like we have like multiple graduations in that but like 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 jk rowling you know like joss whedon kind of locked into kind of like this works really really well for big mythic serialized television uh, storytelling is that this this part of life and i think that it did it you know that job really well every season was its own story um with its own sort of big bads and dramas um and like there was a lot of standalone stories too um, it had that kind of X-Files kind of thing to it, which you had the standalone Monster of the Week thing, but it also kind of had this forward-moving story. But along the way, it just it grew up these characters in a really wise and provocative and really interesting way, and it created this whole world that was continuous with itself. And, um, and, and the supporting characters were really rich to the point that by the end, it wasn't a show about just one person, Buffy. It was about this whole family of people, and I thought it was—it's really impressive. And I think it's—I think it's—and uh, I, 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 it definitely is, is a prize show among a lot of critics. I feel like it still doesn't get quite the credit it deserves, but it certainly gets a lot of credit. I don't want to say it's at all neglected or whatever, um, but I think that you know because of the title, because it's a genre, a genre show. You know, it, 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 it's not easy for 
people who've never watched it or who don't get into the supernatural, you know, thing to really kind of appreciate. But I think that as a piece of cr- a creative work, it's on par with, you know, the great shows of our time. You know, yeah, I think I think it's a, a smart choice for exactly the reason you're saying. I, I think it combines together a lot of different uh, uh, aspects of the serialized drama that we're talking about. You know, there is that sort of wise guy sense that, you know, each year has its own big bad and there's these sort of little story nodes that kind of flow into the more kind of overarching story of, you know, here's the tale of these people as they're going through, you know, the some, you know, some of the most pivotal pivotal, wow, some of the most pivotal uh, turning points in, in, in their life. Um, I, I have to admit something here, Jeff, which is sort of embarrassing. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, huge blind spot for me. Uh, Somehow, uh, I've only seen three episodes of it. The episode that stars Xander, the episode where Dracula appears, and the series finale. I, I don't know how that's even possible because I was generally a very careful uh, TV viewer, and somehow one of the first episodes I saw of it happened to be the last episode ever. <laughs> right, right. Um, but but as, as, as an outsider, and certainly as a fan of everything that Joss Whedon has done since then, I, I think that it did so many things so well, so much earlier than I think anyone else on television was even thinking about doing those things. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I almost wonder if there is still a further rediscovery of that show uh, to be made, especially now that Joss Whedon, with the, with, this, with the success of a little movie called Avengers, now that he has sort of maybe gone mainstream, uh, or at least reached mainstream audiences for the first time in, in his career. Yeah. What's your number one? My number one, uh, not not a huge surprise, a, a show that I absolutely loved um, and uh, that, you know, similar to Buffy, got a lot of respect, but in some ways maybe not the respect it was totally deserved. Uh, my number one is Battlestar Galactica. I... Uh, was I really kind of fell in love with this show very early on. I remember my roommate had the, the complete first season on DVD. I had, you know, watched the original series on, on the Sci-Fi channel when I was a kid and was just like, there's no way this is going to be interesting. And I still remember the experience of watching the very first episode of the, of the series proper, you know, where they're, they have to jump every 33 minutes and they're just all running on empty. And there's just this real kind of visceral sensibility that I, I never really felt before watching, you know, a, a science fiction TV show or a, or, or a movie and just, you know, it, it, it's a show that I think all serialized shows, if they last long enough, kind of can't help but totally go off the rails. And there are people who really feel like the last season of BSG in particular just sort of like had the weirdest combination of this very vaguely defined theology mixing together with stuff that just never really seemed like it was going to make sense. But I, I just think that, you know, here's a show that... I mean, I, I would tune in and it would literally just transport me into an entirely new galaxy and at the same time, you know, really kind of like pick my brain in, in interesting ways. I mean, I think the show had a lot of interesting things to say about war and about kind of modern politics and about, you know, a whole host of things. And really, that's why I have always been a science fiction nerd is for stuff like that, you know, like uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know. Uh, this week on, on Mad Men, Paul Kinsey wrote that star r- wrote that Star Trek script where it was like, you know, they're on a planet where like the white people are the slaves, and it's a funny joke. But you know, that's the kind of thing that I think, at its best, science fiction can tackle. Is it sort of m- makes you look at things from a different perspective. So, 
Yeah, well, Battlestar Galactica was that show that you, you, you gave to your non-geek friends and say, you like, see? Like, you know, spaceships are important. Uh, <laughs> um, spaceships, and, ha- spaceships have themes, I think, is, is, is what you'd yeah, actually say. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and I think that, like, the episode that you talked about, that, that, that you know, the series proper premiere was just a great hour of television. It does that kind of thing to me, which was it, it, that I love that science fiction seems to be able to do a lot is that, you know, I mean, first of all, it was this really visceral hour and it kind of, you know, cultivated the sense of panic in me. I remember watching that show, like, how are they going to, how are they going to get out of this? Like, and who wants to live like this? You know, um, like I think that it really kind of did a great job of introducing you to the stakes of the world and the, and the feeling of the world. But just the creativity of the storytelling. I mean, this was a show that was going to, right from the beginning, announced that they were going to give themselves permission to do nutty things with the storytelling, and you, you need to go along for that ride. And then as it sort of progressed and the themes they brought into it to be able to reflect on, you know, you know the, the first decade of, our, of, our, of this new century with all of its challenges and scariness and stuff like that, like... Like, I, I, that, that show just did a great job. If there's a show, there's a bunch of shows that you want to put into a time capsule and say this kind of captures kind of the feelings and some of the thoughts about, you know, being alive in the first decade of this century. I think Battlestar Galactica has to be one of them. Um, like, it, 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 it was all, it, it wanted to be that show, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, I think it, it did a good job at that. I, I, I liked it. And, and kind of bringing our conversation full circle, I did have a question for you, which is, I like the show. I like it a lot. It would definitely be on my, in my top ten. I don't know where. Um, but it was also a show that I only ever watched on DVD. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as a result... Um, I did not watch it um, when it was on air, and so I was one of these people that contributed to the death of the show, ultimately, because I was not watching the show as it was on the air, and that just doesn't work. Um, but, um, but also, I'm wondering if my lower estimation on my list compared to you is that I was not connected to the fan community. So I wanted to know, like when you were watching the show and you were watching it in, you know, as it was playing out, like, were you participating in the fan community? Was it a show that, like, you got online and talked about or you sought out friends and talked about? You know, honestly, it's funny. Uh, I, when I was watching the show, uh, I was, I think, one of, like, two people I knew who watched it. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I, I wasn't particularly active in the community. What I would do, though, that was a show similar to Lost. After every episode, I just I wanted to read like everything about it. I, yeah. uh, I, I very early on became very addicted. The uh, the creator and, and executive producer uh, Ronald D. Moore, he had this incredible weekly podcast. Usually would run for about an hour, uh, and it was always just him. You know, he'd have like you know he'd have like like like, like some scotch and, and some cigarettes, and he would just be talking about you know the full. <laughs> development of each episode. And for me, I mean, uh, you know, it was almost like listening to those podcasts. I feel like I learned a lot about television. I mean, you know, on one hand, there's just sort of a great, you know, great stories about him kind of saying, you know, what we did and didn't have money for. And like, you know, we like the, the, there's the, this great series 
uh, at the beginning of the third season when he basically admitted, you know, we blew all our budget on that new Caprica stuff. So that's why now we have this sort of run of episodes of like, and now they're boxing. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's it was an interesting insight into how to craft a show that to me always felt very epic and expansive on, you know, what, what I can only imagine was a very, you know, uh, a, a relatively small, basic cable filmed in Canada budget. Um, I, I, I do think, though, that, uh, and uh, I, I, I've been intrigued to see if, if our listeners have any thoughts about this. That's actually the first show where I largely watched it online. Usually, you know, uh, I think at the time it was either on NBC.com or it was on Sci-Fi.com. In my younger days, I may or may not have been able to access it through uh, through slightly less legal means. Uh, I, I think I only actually watched it on television once. Uh, it, it, it never really felt like a show that uh, you had to watch every week the way that Lost did. And it may just be because so, so many fewer people watched it. Um, yeah, I, I think I think then that you and I both contributed to the demise of that show because we were watching <laughs> it in, in legitimate, well, in your case, also illegitimate ways, um, um, but also, but but in ways that speak to just the new new way that people consume entertainment. And like you know, I love TV on DVD. You know, um, that's how I've discovered a lot of my shows. Like I prefer watching HBO shows that way. Um, but people watch stuff online too. Um, but we're, we kind of adopted these new formats at a time where it didn't really serve well the ongoing, um, you know, uh, livelihood of of, of, a, of a show on on television. I hopefully that that's going to change over time. But it that 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 interests me. But it does. But it is interesting to me though that I would say then that you did participate in the fan community, like you know the fact that you would watch the show. And then you would seek out content online, whether it's recaps or whether it was Ron Moore's um, video blog. Um, you, 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 and, and, and I think that kind of like clearly, it seems that kind of like um, uh, made it even more uh, a richer experience for you and, and, and brought it to life. And um, I, and I wonder for me if like I would you know a lot of the shows that people connect to and extol and talk about like. Like for me, like The Wire is one of those shows where I kind of almost academically check the box and say, yes, it's one of the greatest shows of all time, if not the greatest show of all time. But like, I only ever watched the show on DVD. I didn't like read any recaps. I wasn't part of the fan culture. Not that, you know, that's a very different kind of fan culture. But I mean, I just wasn't part of the cultural conversation about that show. And like Battlestar Galactica, that show was had a very small cultural conversation. But I mean, um, but you know what I mean? Like I, the the fact that you you did that with Battlestar elevates. I think, like you know, not that Battlestar isn't worthy of your number one. I'm not saying that. But I guess what I'm saying is, if I was part of that fan culture, it would probably elevate on on my list. You know, it's it's uh, it certainly is like you know the, the the interesting thing about television is that you know when you're watching it, you kind of feel like you're living inside of it. And I think that you know, yeah, to sort of bring this all to a close, the joy of the serialized drama is that you're really kind of living inside of this storyline that you know you kind of you feel as if you're being carried along with it, just like the characters, just like the actors, just like the writers, and. Uh, I think I think what we can conclude from all of this, Jeff, if I read you correctly, is that Kings may be a better series than The Wire. Is that is that basically what you what you were just saying? Yes, yeah, you, inter- <laughs> you you interpreted me correctly. <laughs> all right. But so I think I think the moral of the story is that when we when we watch uh, these shows and we get into them, we're, we're all on the island. Beautiful. 
What? Uh, I don't even know what I just said. Anyway, <laughs> you've reached the end of the podcast. <laughs> and that wraps it up for this week's episode of Entertainment Geekly. Next week, we'll be talking about E3, the big uh, video game convention. We'll be doing a little preview and uh, just really kind of geeking out on all kinds of video games. Uh, as always, I'm Darren Franich. I'm Jeff Jensen. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody.